who sold everything and moved to Italy to find true happiness, you know what I'm talking about. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking bold action. Life and happiness occasionally demand it. But remember that you hear about people making big changes because this is the exception, not the rule. Narrative drama comes from bold action, not from the incremental progress that leads to sustainable success. Which is why I don't have a camera crew following me around while I do my two post-pee push-ups. Okay, maybe that's not the only reason. My point is that big, bold actions on the balance are not as effective as many of us are led to believe. While small might not be sexy, it is successful and sustainable. When it comes to most life changes that people want to make, big, bold moves actually don't work as well as small, stealthy ones. Applying go big or go home to everything you do is a recipe for self-criticism and disappointment. We already know that the motivation monkey loves to help us make big moves, then slips away from us when the going gets tough. And doing big things can be painful. We often push ourselves beyond our physical, emotional, or mental capabilities. And while we might be able to keep this up for a while... Humans don't do things that are painful for very long. As you can imagine, this isn't a good recipe for creating successful habits. Despite all this, go big or go home is the way many people approach change. As a result, most people don't know how to think tiny. Designing simple behaviors is not a skill everyone has. If they do break things down into steps, those steps are often too big or too complicated. The result is that people become overwhelmed and find themselves without a way to correct their course when they get caught in bursts and busts of motivation because their ebbing motivation wave leaves them high and dry. Sarika, a project manager for a Fortune 500 company based in Bangalore, experienced this motivation cycle for years. Before she started Tiny Habits, Sarika had tried to get in the habit of cooking for herself and exercising to keep herself healthy. She lives with bipolar disorder, which means she experiences extreme highs and lows in mood and energy. In the past, Sarika had used medications to manage her condition, but she hated the side effects. Her doctors told her it was possible to treat her symptoms with meditation exercise, and therapy, but that maintaining a routine was critical to making this approach work. A routine would help her identify the severity of her symptoms early on so she could take action before they negatively affected her life. Sarika couldn't always tell if a manic high or a depressive low was sneaking up on her. So it made sense to her that daily habits would be a great way for her to gauge how she was feeling. If she started watering the jade plant in her hallway every morning, she would know what it feels like to complete that action. On good days, she does it without thinking. But if she feels the urge to ignore the watering jug she placed by the doorway as a reminder, she knows something is up and that she should pay closer attention to how she feels doing all her other habits. There was only one problem. Sarika could not maintain a routine, no matter how hard she tried. 
Before she found Tiny Habits, nothing was routine in Sarika's life except going to work, and even then, she rarely got to work at a consistent time. Breakfast was grabbed from a food truck, and lunch, if it happened at all, was takeout. She didn't clean her kitchen until the mess got really bad, then she'd make like a whirling dervish and do it in an hour. Sarika loves to meditate, but would go weeks without sitting on her cushion. Without medication and without these habits as a steady baseline, she often felt out of control. She was short-tempered at home and down in the dumps at work, and she felt like she was being asked to build a spaceship to Mars when her doctor told her to create habits. Sarika was caught in a burst-and-bust cycle. One of the most problematic issues in Sarika's life was physical therapy. After months of only occasionally doing a prescribed 30-minute exercise routine, Sarika found that her injured knee wasn't getting any better. She needed to do the exercises, but she couldn't get herself to get out those elastic bands. When she couldn't take the pain anymore, Sarika would hit a motivation high, a burst, and only then would she do what she had been putting off. But because she hadn't been doing the exercises regularly, they felt even more painful than usual, and she would hit the bust part of the cycle and wouldn't do her exercises for several days. She repeated this cycle with most every habit she tried to undertake. What Sarika was going through is common. Many people get stuck in a burst and bust cycle that makes us anxious and disappointed, whether they are trying to quit drinking soda, get up before the sun rises, cook dinner at home every night, track each penny earned, or invest time each day in finding new prospects. Like most people locked in this cycle, Sarika's emotions were all over the map. Some days she'd feel fine, and some days she felt bad about not being able to establish healthy habits. Her confidence was nearly zero, and she worried that she wasn't capable of making permanent changes. Sarika finally found a simple method for designing her habits that didn't feel like she had to master astrophysics. She began building her routine the tiny habits way, small and steady. Instead of aiming for 20 minutes of meditation each day, she started with three breaths on a pillow strategically placed in the middle of her living room. Instead of cooking an entire breakfast, Sarika committed to turning on the stovetop burner right after she entered the kitchen. Instead of 30 minutes of physical therapy exercises, she started with 30 seconds of stretching on her favorite blue yoga mat. From there, Sarika built skills and confidence and wired in those tiny behaviors until they took root as habits. Then they grew. She mastered the daily routine that she chased for all those years, and her health has improved now that she makes herself meals, cleans the kitchen, exercises, meditates, and waters her plants every day. Sarika told me that she feels a sense of resilience that she's never had before. According to Sarika, the most important part of this was not just the creation of her healthy habits and symptom management, but also the confidence it gave her. She knows now that she can do almost anything she wants to, as long as she starts small. If there are times when she can't do her habits because she isn't feeling well, 
she doesn't go into a shame spiral anymore. Sarika recently sprained her ankle and was bedridden for days. Because she lives in a building with no elevator, she told me that in the past, she would have cried and thought, why do these things always happen to me? But this time, she accepted the pain without a downward emotional spiral. She took it one day at a time, knowing that she could get back to her healthy routine as soon as she healed. The reason she felt this way is that it's easier to pick things up again when they are small. There's no mountain to climb, only a little hill. Simple, easy to do. And that makes all the difference, not just with Sarika's ability to act, but also how she feels day to day. She doesn't beat herself up on the days when she's not feeling well because she knows she can resume her bigger routine tomorrow. On the days her motivation is high, she climbs her little habit hill and finds she has the mental and emotional space to experiment and be curious about what other good things she can bring into her life. Things feel lighter and more doable. If she wants to start a new habit, she gets excited and curious instead of overwhelmed. That mindset shift is something that is rippled throughout her life. Sarika and the founders of Instagram were able to overcome a fundamental change myth and find success because they capitalized on the most reliable way to drive behavior, fiddling with the ability dial and making things easy. While I'm primarily focusing on habits in this book, Making things easy to do will help you with almost any behavior. I'll talk specifically about how to solve for those one-time actions you've been putting off and also give you more tools to help you design the life you want. You'll be able to use these new skills to tackle big, long-term goals. With behavior design, you have enormous potential, whether the change you're aiming for is big or small. Tiny is where we start. In the Steps in Behavior Design Let's add step four to the steps in behavior design. To review, step one, clarify the aspiration. Step two, explore behavior options. Step three, match with specific behaviors. And now step four, start tiny. Using ability to create habits. The reason we want to make a behavior easy to do, which often means starting tiny, is so the unpredictability of the motivation monkey doesn't mess up our future success. In order to do a behavior, motivation and ability have to exist in sufficient amounts to put you above the action line in the behavior model. We've already established that motivation is unreliable. Luckily, ability is not. By looking at where our ability lands on the behavior model, we get a good idea of what behaviors are more or less likely to become habit. Let's say you want to do 20 push-ups every day. You can map this to the behavior model. It would land on the left side of the spectrum as hard to do. You can see a graphic of the behavior model showing this new habit of 20 push-ups in the downloadable PDF. At most times of the day, your motivation to do 20 push-ups is probably on the low end, which pushes you to the bottom half of the vertical axis. 
Now, on the horizontal axis, this behavior is located almost all the way to the left because this, 20 push-ups, is hard for you. Both of these inputs place your behavior well beneath the action line. This tells us that doing 20 push-ups at a time is unlikely to become a habit for most people. Because your ability is so low, you'll only do this behavior on days when you're riding the motivation wave. And that's not very often. But here's what it would look like if your new habit was to do two push-ups against a wall. When you place this tinier behavior on the behavior model, it's on the far right and above the action line. You can see a graphic of this in the downloadable PDF. When we look at the vertical motivation axis, we see that it's similar to the 20 push-ups version, but there's an important difference. Two push-ups against a wall has moved you all the way to the right on your horizontal axis. Notice that if you make a behavior easy to do, your motivation can still be low, but you will be above the action line. This is one of the hacks in the tiny habits method. Make the behavior so tiny that you don't need much motivation. Doing two push-ups against a wall is easy to accomplish, so you're much more likely to keep it as a habit. When you are designing a new habit, you are really designing for consistency. And for that result, you'll find that simplicity is the key. Or as I like to teach my students, simplicity changes behavior. If you want to do a habit consistently, then you've got to adjust the most reliable thing in the behavior model, and that is ability. That's where we have the most power to stack the deck in our favor. If a behavior is hard, make it easier to do. You'll see that over time, your motivation will vary, but your ability will improve the more you do your new habit, and that increase in ability helps your habit grow. When you place this on the FOG behavior model, you can see that the first time you do a new habit, it might be somewhat hard, but it gets easier to do each time you do it. You can see a graphic of this in the downloadable PDF. Here's a model showing how it would look if you consistently did two push-ups against a wall for a couple of weeks. In essence, each time you do the two push-ups, it gets easier to do, moving you to the right on the behavior model and further above the action line. Each day you do the behavior, you build a bit more muscle strength, flexibility, and skill. This makes the behavior easier and easier to do, moving the behavior farther and farther to the right on the horizontal axis. And if you feel successful, your motivation will also increase. More on that in the next chapter. When you set motivation aside and design your habits by manipulating ability, you might be surprised at how quickly your habits take hold and grow. I learned this early on when I was experimenting, creating my own tiny habits, even before I was calling them that. I'd already figured out the behavior model, and I knew that ability component of B equals MAP was critical to making a behavior happen consistently over time. But I had used this insight only in my research at Stanford and when I was helping professionals to design new products and services. 
I hadn't yet shifted to the arena of personal change. Until one day. I was in the dentist chair being gently chastised again for not flossing my teeth. I mean, embarrassing, right? I mean, there I was, a behavior scientist, and I couldn't get myself to floss daily. Some days I was motivated, like the day after a dentist visit, but other times I didn't care so much. The motivation monkey was winning. But I was pretty sure I could make flossing a daily habit if I focused on the ability component of my behavior model. As the hygienist went to get the dentist for a final check, I asked myself, how can I make flossing easier to do? I came up with an answer, though I didn't dare tell my hygienist. She would have been horrified. I decided to floss just one tooth. Seriously. After I brushed my teeth in the morning, I would floss one tooth. So my tiny habit recipe looked like this. After I brush my teeth, I will floss one tooth. That's it. Despite how silly this might seem, it worked. For the first few days, I flossed only one tooth just to keep things simple. But I made a rule. I got extra credit for flossing more teeth, even though one tooth was all I had to do. After about two weeks, I was flossing all my teeth twice a day, and I've been doing that ever since. Once I figured out my plan of action, regularly flossing my teeth was easy. But there is an underlying and beautiful complexity that made this all possible. I got to my solution by making flossing my teeth ridiculously easy to do. But first, I had to understand what makes something hard to do. That's why you should always start with this question. What is making this behavior hard to do? What I found in my research and years of experience is that your answer will involve at least one of five factors. I call them the ability factors. Here's how they break down. Do you have enough time to do the behavior? Do you have enough money to do the behavior? Are you physically capable of doing the behavior? Does the behavior require a lot of creative or mental energy? Does the behavior fit into your current routine, or does it require you to make adjustments? Your ability chain is only as strong as its weakest ability factor link. You can visualize these factors as a chain that connect together with time, money, physical effort, mental effort, and routine, each links in the chain. You can see a visual of this in the downloadable PDF. By asking what I call the discovery question, what is making this behavior hard to do? We are lasering in on which factor is likely to cause us the most trouble. And when I say hard to do, keep in mind that I don't just mean very hard. I mean any amount of hard to do that would keep you from doing the behavior. You'll see what I mean with this in the next example. Let's take a look at the habit of doing a seven-minute workout, something that most people would say sounds easy. But is it? (laughs) Let's break things down by using the ability chain. Time is probably the strongest link. Seven minutes is easy for most people to fit into their day. At least it is when compared to the expectation that one should exercise 30 minutes a day. Next, money. 
Sure, you can do this in your own home, so this behavior is free. Physical effort? Uh, here we go. For some people, doing a seven-minute workout sounds easy. However, most apps for this workout urge you to push yourself as you cycle through the exercises, and that's not easy. So for people who follow directions, the physical effort link is probably weak. That alone could be enough to derail your efforts at making the seven-minute workout a habit. Which brings me to my tiny flossing behavior. Flossing takes only a few seconds, just a little bit of time. It costs almost nothing, very little money. I already knew how to do it, so that's very little physical effort. It nicely slotted into my life, so it fit into my routine. So those factors were all strong links. But when I thought about the physical effort factor, <laughs> I was surprised. Flossing was hard to do physically. <laughs> now, this may sound strange because flossing isn't like digging a ditch or lifting a car. But for me, it was hard enough to derail my habit. The important overshare here is that flossing is hard for me because my teeth are very close together. My hygienist calls this phenomenon close contacts, <laughs> which means that it is a struggle for me to get the floss between my teeth. I have to wrestle with the floss to get it in there, then I feel like I'm pulling my tooth out to wrestle it back out again. Then the floss would shred and get stuck, and I'd have to start again with a new piece. So this wobbly little link in my ability chain was weak. Weak enough for me to blow off flossing for months at a time. The behavior was just hard enough and my motivation just weak enough that flossing was never going to become a habit the way I was doing it. So what did I do to make flossing easier to do? I searched for floss that would fit between my teeth. After buying and sampling about 15 types, I found the perfect floss for me. Almost everyone I meet has habits like this that elude them. Think about all the things you don't do for your health, your productivity, your sanity, that you want to do. So why can't you? Well, you can with the right approach. Ask the discovery question and identify the weak links in your ability chain, then zero in on the right problem to solve. This is what makes the ability chain such a transformative tool. It allows you to shift into action without confusion, irritation, or exasperation. When it came to my flossing transformation, I didn't blame myself for lacking motivation to floss. Instead, I set out to make it easier to do by starting with one tooth and using thinner floss. Once I had shored up the ability factor, I did the behavior repeatedly. I cultivated a habit that I had been chasing for years. Once I had taken the first step, it felt easy to do the rest. <laughs> yeah, I already had my hands in my mouth, right? Plus, the more I did it, the more skilled I became at flossing. This feeling of success motivated me to floss again the next day. By keeping the behavior tiny, I helped this habit root itself into my routine. Here's how to think about it. Imagine a big plant with small roots. When a powerful wind kicks up, the big plant might topple over because it's not held firmly in place. 
And that's how habit formation works. If you start with a big behavior that's hard to do, the design is unstable. It's like a large plant with shallow roots. When a storm comes into your life, your big habit is at risk. However, a habit that is easy to do can weather a storm like flexible sprouts, and it can then grow deeper and stronger roots. So if you haven't gotten off the couch in a year, don't start with seven minutes of strenuous activity. Start tiny instead. Shore up the weakest link in your ability chain by making your new workout habit radically easy to do. Scale back to doing, say, one wall push-up. Just one. When you run into a setback, a cold for instance, you can still manage to do one wall push-up, stuffy nose and all. By going tiny, you create consistency. By staying tiny, you get your new habit firmly rooted. Which leads us to the second critical question we should ask about any behavior or habit we want to cultivate. How can I make this behavior easier to do? I call this the breakthrough question, and it turns out there are only three answers. You can find the three answers in the pack person model that I've created. First of all, consider the person, in this case yourself. You can increase your skill and in that way make a behavior easier to do. You're changing a person, and in this case yourself, through training. Next, you can take the action and scale it back and make it tiny. That's what I did with flossing. Instead of all of my teeth, I scaled the action back so it was just one tooth. The third approach is to change the environment or the context. And in this case, that would mean getting tools or resources to make it easier to do. In my flossing example, I found floss that was a better tool for me. It was easier to use. All three approaches manipulate the ability element of the behavior model to move you above the action line and increase the likelihood that you will actually do a behavior. Regardless of what your aspiration is, increasing your skills, getting tools and resources, and making the behavior tiny are what makes things easier to do. But it's important to remember that designing for behaviors can take different paths. Sometimes, all you'll need is the right tool to make the habit easier to do, like using skinny floss. And other times, all you have to do is scale the behavior back to its tiniest version such as flossing just one tooth. Think of making something easy to do as a pond with three different ways to enter. Whether you jump off the dock, wade in at the beach, or drop in from a rope swing, you'll soon be swimming in the same water. Now, let's break down each approach. The three approaches to making a behavior easier to do. Number one, increase your skills. When you are better at something, it's easier to do. By gaining skills, you're turning up the volume on ability. How you increase your skills depends on the behavior. It could mean doing online research, asking a friend for tips, or taking a class. And you can increase your skills by doing the behavior over and over. I increase my flossing skills by watching some videos on the internet. As you know, if you can think of a behavior, there's going to be a video online that shows you how to do it. 
Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, is a global bestseller, not because her book focused on motivating people to keep their houses clean, but because it focused on teaching them the block-and-tackle steps of how to tidy up. Increasing your skills could mean hiring a voice coach, like I've done, taking a knife skills class at your local grocery store, or practicing your push-up form. The act of skilling up feels natural when you're riding a motivation wave because you are using this energy crest to your advantage. They are one-time actions that make future behaviors easier to do. So why not do them when you're bursting with energy at the outset? Let's say you finish listening to this chapter and you're feeling jazzed about doing push-ups. This would be a good time to look up a video on the internet about proper push-up form while your motivation is still high. You may not always have the energy for skilling up, and that's fine. There are other ways to make your behavior easier to do. Number two, get tools and resources. Something as small as unwashed lettuce or mismatched Tupperware lids can be the difference between bringing a salad to work and grabbing a burger. If a behavior frustrates you, it will not become a habit. Getting the right tools to make a behavior easier could mean anything from getting a better set of kitchen knives to finding more comfortable walking shoes. If you want to make the tiny habits method easier to do, this book is a terrific first step. Getting personal guidance from a coach I've trained is also a great option. Tools were crucial to making flossing easier for me. I had to find the right floss thin and slippery. (laughs) I became such a fan of that floss that I got myself a special tour of the floss factory when I traveled to Dublin, Ireland for work. (laughs) I know it seems weird, and my partner Denny thought I was nuts at first, but for a floss geek like me, (laughs) a tour didn't feel weird at all. My former boot camper, Molly, is another example of how tools and resources can catalyze change. Molly had struggled with maintaining a healthy weight ever since she was 10 years old. As an adult, her biggest habit hurdle was meal preparation. She couldn't do it consistently, even though she knew how much better she felt when she made her own food ahead of time instead of being cornered into making poor choices vending machine lunches, or leftover meeting pizzas. Without a healthy, prepared meal in her bag, she'd find herself with an anxiety-provoking dilemma at noon. What am I going to eat? Where should I go? Will it be healthy? Molly called this decision fatigue, the burden of making a choice when she was least equipped for it because she was hungry and busy and it not only created unnecessary mental spinning, it often led her to eat out of alignment with her healthy aspirations. As a busy professional, she was not only pressed for time, but she was also deeply ambivalent about cooking. From a behavior model standpoint, Molly's motivation for meal prep was low, but not non-existent, 
She really did want the energy, good health, and confidence that came along with eating well. Ability was where Molly had the most room for improvement. As luck would have it, she met a resource, a good-looking one at that. Ryan, Molly's future husband, was into Olympic weightlifting, and he paid close attention to nutrition. He was methodical about preparing meals for the week and didn't seem to mind doing this as much as Molly did. She observed and adopted some of his techniques, using Tupperware and cooking massive amounts of sweet potatoes for low blood sugar moments. Soon, they got into a habit of cooking and prepping every Sunday for the week ahead. While she loved spending the time with her husband, Molly was less enthused about spending five hours in the kitchen. Sunday would roll around. She'd make other plans so she could avoid the kitchen, promising herself she'd pick up a salad on the way to work every day. But she rarely would. Then she'd find herself in the middle of the workday staring down the leftover pizza in the conference room, knowing what she would choose and already disappointed in herself. After attending my two-day boot camp, Molly knew this was a behavior design problem, not a character flaw or a matter of willpower. Instead of getting down on herself about skipping out on a Sunday in the kitchen with her future husband, she started thinking more strategically about how she could help make meal prep easier. She joked that since meal prep was so fun for him, maybe he could just do hers as well. <laughs> She said that suggestion got her a raised eyebrow and a hearty laugh, but not much else. One day, Molly went to a friend's house and watched her use an unfamiliar device with a flat frame and an adjustable blade. Her friend sliced an entire carrot into a salad bowl in about 10 seconds with no wobbly cutting board and no dull knife. This seemed like magic to Molly. She asked her friend, wow, what is that thing? It was a mandolin, the first of many time-saving devices and kitchen tools that Molly would later acquire. Now, warning here, mandolin slicers are great, but they're also dangerous. Be careful. Using her future husband as a resource and key tools like her handy mandolin, Molly reduced her Sunday food prep time from five hours to two and a half. Now she mandolins carrots, cucumbers, and peppers into Tupperware containers lined up for each day of the week. Cutting the time in half and making the process more enjoyable was all she needed to move herself above the action line. Months after she redesigned her behavior, Molly and Ryan were consistently prepping 10 meals per week, which covered all their lunches and dinners on workdays. Ditching decision fatigue meant Molly could make room during her day for exercise, which helped her increase her energy and overall wellness even more. She found herself better able to keep up with Ryan on their trail runs, and she even proposed they keep their healthy eating going while on vacation. The night before their honeymoon, Molly dragged Ryan to the bulk section of the supermarket to stock up on nuts and blueberries for the plane ride. 
A year later, she told me she is happier, more energetic, and more productive than ever before. Most important, she now asks, how can I make this behavior easier to do when she lacks motivation to do something she wants to do? Not everyone should buy a mandolin or a fancy kitchen equipment to make their behavior easier to do. But in Molly's case, she'd experimented with other ways, buying pre-cooked food, prepping meals every evening, and nothing else had worked. She knew tools and resources were one behavior design strategy that she hadn't tried, so she went for it. By cutting her time in half, she crossed the line from too hard to easy to do. In the end, I'd say that a flexible, experimental mindset for problem-solving was perhaps Molly's most handy tool of all. Here's an easy-to-do analysis, and it has two questions. First of all, meal prep habit. Ask yourself, what's making this behavior hard to do? The problem in this case, the weakest link in Molly's ability chain were time, yeah, five hours was just too much, and physical effort, chopping and cutting with bad equipment is laborious. Next question, how can I make this behavior easier to do? The solution, Molly used tools to help her eliminate the time and physical effort factors that were hampering her ability to act. She also leaned on Ryan as a resource to guide her in what to prepare for the week and how to do it. And now we go to the third way to make a behavior easier to do. And that's make the behavior tiny. Making a behavior radically tiny is the cornerstone of the tiny habits method for a reason. It's a foolproof way to make something easier to do, which means it's often a good place to start regardless of your motivation levels. We have already looked at several examples of how to make things tiny. They fall into two categories, starter step and scaling back. Starter step. This is exactly what it sounds like. One small move toward the desired behavior. If you want to make a habit out of walking three miles every day, your starter step might be putting on your walking shoes. That starter step becomes your tiny behavior and the only action you need to do at the start of your new habit. The objective here is to begin with a crucial step in the process of doing the desired behavior. Tell yourself, I don't have to walk. I just have to make sure I put on my shoes each day. Now, putting those shoes on will shift your perception. Walking suddenly won't seem so hard. Most days, you'll head out the door and take a spin around the block after putting on your shoes. This is one way starter steps can turn into bigger habits. However, I want to share an important part of the tiny habits mindset. Do not raise the bar prematurely. Don't rush to make the behavior bigger. It's always okay to not walk after putting on your shoes if that's all you want to do for that day. By keeping the bar low, you keep the habit alive. You ensure that you're always capable of doing the behavior no matter how your motivation fluctuates. 
one of Sarika's biggest victories was cooking herself breakfast. This was a task that she had felt was both insurmountable and defeating. People cooked breakfast every day. Why did this feel so hard for her to do? After taking a Tiny Habits course and learning about starter steps, Sarika was determined to play around with habits to see if she could design her way out of the problem. So Sarika decided she'd turn the stovetop burner on first thing in the morning. That was her new habit. <laughs> oh, so tiny. It was a starter step to cooking breakfast. And that's all she did the first few days. She'd leave the burner on for a few seconds and then turn it off. But she soon built on that starter step and put a pot on top of the burner. Then once the pot was there, she thought, why not boil water for porridge? Once the water was boiling, it seemed silly not to put the porridge in. And she wound up making herself breakfast most days, amazed at how much easier it felt than what she'd built it up to be in her head. But if she ever felt rushed or distracted, it was okay if she just turned on the burner and turned it off because the starter step is the behavior that needs to become hardwired into her routine. The starter step is a kind of mental jiu-jitsu. It has a surprising impact for such a small move because the momentum it creates often propels you to the next steps with less friction. The key is not to raise the bar. Doing the starter step is success. Every time you do it, you are keeping that habit alive and cultivating the possibility of growth. Sarika was surprised by how quickly her burner habit blossomed into multiple habits that led to a full-blown breakfast habit. Buoyed by her success, she enlisted her mom as a resource. She also began skilling up. Within a few months, she'd moved beyond porridge and was whipping up morning dosas with chutney. So let's break this down with an easy-to-do analysis. First, the discovery question for the breakfast habit. What is making this behavior hard to do? The problem? The weakest link in Sarika's ability chain was mental effort. She didn't have a plan for what to cook, and the dishes were piled up on the counter so she had nowhere to assemble a meal, and this all felt too complicated for her to handle. Next, the breakthrough question. How can I make this behavior easier to do? The solution. Sarika made it easier to do by using a starter step to break down an otherwise overwhelming process into discrete steps. Lighting the burner was easy to do, and this simple behavior gave her a sense of success that caused her habit to root and grow. Scaling back. Now we come to the second way to make a behavior tiny. Scaling back. This means taking the behavior you want and shrinking it. As a result, your tiny habit will be a much smaller version of your desired behavior. Consider my flossing habit. I wanted to floss all my teeth, but began with just one. I scaled it back. If your desired behavior is to walk a mile every day, you can scale it back by walking to the mailbox. Nothing more. 
As with the starter step, the scaled back version is your tiny habit. It's your baseline behavior. The only thing you have to do every day to cultivate the walking habit that will eventually grow to full size. Let's wrap this section by doing a breakdown of my flossing habit using the easy-to-do analysis. First, the discovery question. What is making flossing hard to do? The problem? The weakest link in my ability chain was physical effort. The thick floss I used was difficult to get between my teeth, and this took effort and frustrated me as I struggled to get the floss between each close contact. Next, the breakthrough question. How can I make flossing easier to do? The solution, I made flossing easier to do by acquiring the right tool. I found floss that glided smoothly between my teeth. No effort, no strain. But the key was this. I scaled the behavior back from all my teeth to just one tooth. Without scaling back, flossing would not have become a habit for me. I needed to start tiny. Designing your tiny habit. Take your golden behaviors from Chapter 2 and see if you can make them tiny. Find a starter step or scale back. Either way is fine. Let's look at some examples. First of all, here's the habit we want to make tiny. Read every day. A starter step for that would be just open your book. A scaled back version of that is reading one paragraph. Let's go to the next habit. Say you want to drink more water. A starter step could be put a water bottle in your purse. A scaled-back version is drink a sip of water. Next habit, meditate for 10 minutes. A starter step would be take your meditation pillow out of the closet. The scaled-back version could be meditate for three breaths. Next habit, clean the kitchen after every meal. The starter step could be Open the dishwasher. The scaled-back version, clear the table after every meal. Next habit, take vitamins daily. The starter step, put vitamins in a small bowl, and this is exactly what I do. A scaled-back version would be to take one vitamin. Next habit, eat blueberries for a snack. The starter step, pack blueberries in my work bag. A scaled-back version, eat two or three blueberries. And the last habit, pay my bills online. Starter step, visit one bill payment website. A scaled-back version is pay one bill. Where do I start? Skills, tools, or tiny? Because behavior design is a system with various pathways, there's no single right answer. However, I can guide you in making that determination for yourself. Even though you don't have to do all three things to make something easier to do, using all three options is a great way to set yourself up for success by making sure your behavior is as simple as it can be. To decide which jumping-off point is best for you, look at your motivation level. Acquiring skills and tools are often one-time actions best done when your motivation is high. When our motivation is high, we can do more difficult things. But when it's on the low side, we need to compensate 
by making the behavior tiny. Gauging our motivation for completing each behavior helps us determine our next step on the road to making it a habit. It's like checking the pressure in your car tires. Do you need to add more air, or can you drive away without doing that? Because I'm someone who loves systems, I've created a flowchart that tells you how to make any behavior easier to do. You'll find this flowchart in the downloadable PDF. But right now, I'll walk you through an example to help you conceptualize how this works in real life. Let's say you want a habit of doing 20 push-ups every day. Here are the steps to make that behavior easier to do with some questions to guide you. First, there's an analysis phase. You ask the discovery question. What makes doing 20 push-ups hard to do? The ability chain will give you your answer. In this case, it will most likely be physical effort. That is the link you are solving for. Next, the design phase. Ask the breakthrough question. How can I make push-ups easier to do? Knowing that physical effort is the weakest link, Ask yourself which of the ways to make a behavior easier to do will work for you. For the design phase, we turn to the three parts of the pack person model. Ask yourself, will improving my push-up skills make it easier to do? Mm, that's not the full solution. Probably a good idea if you have the motivation, though. Next, will getting the right tools or resources help me make it easier? Not really. There are videos that can guide you in the right way to do push-ups, but they don't make this exercise any easier, <laughs> and a trainer can't actually do the push-ups for you. Next, can I make 20 push-ups tinier so the new habit is easier to do? Yes. 20 push-ups requires a lot of physical effort, so the best option is to make this habit tinier. There are a few ways to do this. Cutting it down to one push-up, doing a few push-ups on your knees, or doing push-ups against a wall. No matter what new habit you want to create, these questions and three approaches will guide you through the process of designing your new habit to be easier to do. And these questions will become second nature with practice. Let me walk you through the design flow of making a behavior easier to do. Are you feeling motivated enough to learn a new skill? Yes? Great, do it. And now go to the next question. But if the answer is no, well, just go to the next question. Are you feeling motivated to find a tool or resource? Yes? Excellent, make it happen. And now go to the next question. The answer is no, keep going. Can you scale back the behavior to make it tiny? Yes? Fantastic, you're done you can start practicing your new habit. If your answer is no, go to the next question. Can you find a starter step for your behavior? Yes? Great. Make the starter step your initial habit, then do more later when you feel like it. <laughs> if your answer is no, uh-oh. If you said no to this answer and all of the previous ones, you might need to go back and match yourself with a different behavior from your swarm of behaviors. Keep the habit alive. 
Making your behavior easy to do not only helps it take root so it can grow big, but it also helps you hang on to it as a habit when the going gets tough. Think of it this way. You can keep many tiny plants alive by giving them a few drops of water every day. It's the same with habits. There are still days when my motivation is unusually low for flossing. On those days, I floss only one tooth. The key is that I never feel bad about it because I've done my habit. I know one tooth is enough to keep the habit alive. Now, most days I do all of them, so I'm not about to sweat a day or two here and there. Stuff happens. People get sick, take vacations. There are emergencies. We're not aiming for perfection here, only consistency. Keeping the habit alive means keeping it rooted in your routine, no matter how tiny it is. And let me say that again, it's so important. Keeping the habit alive means keeping it rooted in your routine, no matter how tiny it is. The winning pattern? Simplicity changes behavior. When it comes to habit formation, simplicity wins. And not just in our personal lives. I've seen a clear pattern in the digital products that millions of people use every day. Everything big started small. Look at Google, Instagram, Amazon, and Slack. When they first launched, each company started with something small and focused. Because they were simple to use, these products became firmly rooted in people's lives. The companies added more features only when those products became solid habits. Most products that launch with lots of features and complexity spiral down in flames. I'm urging you to apply this pattern of success to your own life. If you want a habit to grow big, you need to start small and simple. Once the habit wires in, you can grow it naturally. Before Sarika and Molly put their tiny habits into motion, both women felt overwhelmed. They were experiencing a dread, a lack of confidence, and a mysterious feeling of resistance. Going tiny changed all that. They got started easily, and they quickly enjoyed feeling successful. With each success, their fears diminished. The change process started feeling less like work and more like fun. You can apply the tiny habits approach to everything, not just habits. So many frustrating family dynamics and workplace dramas erupt because of the misplaced belief that manipulating motivation is the key to changing behavior. But now you know that simplicity is what reliably changes behavior. Let me make a note about one-time behaviors, as opposed to habits. Starter steps can also work magic on things that don't need to be habitual. Not long ago, I had to call the oral surgeon to schedule a follow-up appointment, yeah, which is not fun. So I was procrastinating, even though this doesn't sound like a hard behavior to execute. But it's a good example of those things that we feel silly for putting off, but we avoid nonetheless. The important thing to remember about procrastination 
is that the perception of difficulty can be just as important as the actual difficulty. In addition, every day you don't do the task, it grows in your head, which makes the task seem more and more difficult. Now, before I sank too deeply into the hole, I came up with a starter step. Write the doctor's phone number on a post-it and put it on my phone. Now, I told myself that writing down the number was all I had to do, so I did it. By lowering the bar, I was able to hack my brain. Writing the number down wasn't intimidating. I felt I could do it. Once I did, I had already taken a step toward completing the full behavior, so I picked up the phone and I dialed. Think about how many of these tiny to-dos that you don't want to do are clogging your brain every day. It can get mentally exhausting. Taking the first step, no matter how small, can generate a sense of momentum that our brains love. Completing tasks gives us a boost of confidence, and this increases our motivation to do the entire behavior. An aside, in my own life, I just tell myself, just take the next step. Back to the text. In the next chapter, we'll talk about prompts. The last component of the behavior model is also the next step in the process of cultivating successful habits. We know that no behavior happens without a prompt. Prompts are the cues that remind us to act. They are the spark that lights the fire. So why not make the prompt easy, too? What if you designed a prompt that was already built into your day? Something that takes no time, effort, or money to construct. <laughs> now that sounds simple. Here are the exercises at the end of this chapter. Tiny exercises for making a habit easier to do. There are two parts to this exercise. The first focuses on analysis, the second on design. Part A. Analysis of a difficult habit. Step 1. Write down one difficult habit that you tried to create in the past, but you couldn't make stick. If you can't think of anything from your own life, then use this. Eat more vegetables every day. Step 2. Ask yourself the discovery question. What made that habit hard for you to do? Consider the links and your ability chain. Did this desired habit require too much time, money, mental or physical effort? Did it disrupt your routine? Now part B. Design to make your habit easier to do. And this is step three. For each weak link that you found in step two, ask yourself the breakthrough question. How can you make this habit easier to do? For example, you might consider how you can make this habit require less time. But make sure to come up with a variety of ideas for each weak link. Step four is to select your top three ideas from the previous step. And now, step five. Imagine yourself taking action on your top three ideas to make the habit easier to do. Explore in detail how you would do that. <laughs> and for extra credit, put your insight into action in your real life and see what happens.
Chapter 4 Prompts The Power of After Prompts are the invisible drivers of our lives. We experience hundreds of prompts each day, yet we barely notice most of them. More often than not, we simply act. The stoplight turns green, you hit the gas. You're offered a cheese sample at the grocery store, you eat it. A notification pops up on your computer screen, letting you know that you have a new email. You click to open it. Some prompts exist naturally. You feel a few drops of rain on your arm, so you open your umbrella. Some prompts are designed. The smoke alarm blares, so you open a few windows and you rescue that forgotten pizza in the oven. Whether natural or designed, a prompt says, do this behavior now. But this is the crucial nugget. No behavior happens without a prompt. People respond reliably to prompts when they are motivated and able, which is exactly what makes well-timed prompts so powerful. The writers who create clickbait headlines and the designers who craft the apps on our phones know this. There's a reason many of us can't resist clicking on an app with a little red number on it. That feature has been designed to grab our attention and get us to act. Internet advertisers know that if you combine a prompt with a motivator, such as, click here to win a prize, people will respond in even higher percentages. On the flip side, if there is no prompt, there is no behavior, even if you have high levels of motivation and ability. Maybe you wanted to use the meditation app that you downloaded last week, but since there was no prompt, you forgot. Life is filled with an overwhelming number of prompts that we don't want, but there are plenty that we do want. But most people soar on autopilot at the behest of invisible prompts while desperately trying to remind themselves to do things they keep forgetting to do. If your desk is covered with sticky notes and your phone is pestering you with notifications and you still are not doing the things you want to do, it's time to take the power of prompts back. In this chapter, I'll teach you how to design prompts in or out of your life. Once you've matched yourself to the right behavior and made it easier to do, you're ready for the next step, designing a good prompt for the behavior you want. This is important. Don't leave prompts to chance. The Steps in Behavior Design In Review Step 1 Clarify the aspiration. Step two, explore behavior options. Step three, match with specific behaviors. Step four, start tiny. And now, step five, find a good prompt. In the behavior model, motivation and ability exist on a continuum. But prompts are black and white. You either notice the prompt or you don't. And if you don't notice the prompt, or if the prompt happens at the wrong time, then the behavior won't happen. That makes prompts a crucial component to get right. 
designing a good prompt is a key part of fog maxim number one. Help yourself do what you already want to do. One person who learned to design prompts effectively was my friend and colleague Amy, whose decision to go tiny was detailed in the beginning of this book. About seven years ago, Amy was busy caring for her three kids and trying to grow her business as a freelance education media writer. She loved her work developing patient education materials for doctors and hospitals, but she wasn't doing the necessary behaviors to grow her business. Usually an optimist, Amy found that she was overwhelmed by worry about the future. She wasn't sleeping well and carried a sense of foreboding that she couldn't shake. Every business owner worries about keeping on top of things, but Amy's dread was driven by something far worse than falling behind or losing a client. Her real fear was losing her kids. Amy and her husband hadn't been happy for years, but things had become unbearable lately. The fighting had escalated, and she knew it wasn't a healthy environment for her kids. She wanted to get out, and she suspected that he did too. Separating their lives would be painful. But Amy was more worried about what would come next. For years, she had chosen to focus on her husband's good qualities. He was quick to laugh and generous, and he always supported her professionally. But now she felt backed into a corner with no healthy way to resolve the hostility, contempt, and growing lack of transparency between them. These were sides of her husband that she hadn't wanted to see that now kept her up at night. Divorce can bring out the worst in people, and she feared what he might do if she got on the wrong side of him. And Amy sensed that she was about to be on the very wrong side of him. She knew there was a real possibility that her husband would bring their kids into the fight, and without a solid income, Amy faced the threat that she might lose custody of them. More than anything else, Amy loved her kids. The idea of not being always available for them was shattering. But if she couldn't make ends meet financially, her worst fears could be realized. Amy worried that her husband might resort to using every move available and that she would be stripped of her options and stuck in a never-ending conflict with the children in the middle. The only thing she could think to do was hire a lawyer and get her finances in order before beginning divorce proceedings. But she was stuck on how to create more business. The anxiety over her crumbling marriage and the day-to-day -day stress of raising three kids made it difficult for Amy to concentrate. Now, she had every reason in the world to knock things off her to-do list, return phone calls, hustle for work, write her butt off, but she couldn't get herself to take action on things that mattered. She'd try to get down to business every morning, but on most days, Amy would end up folding clothes, cleaning the kitchen, or rewriting and reordering her to-do list instead of taking actions that would bring income to support her family. She would do a few tasks on her list, but they were usually easy and not very essential. 
she was either overthinking or underacting. But either way, she wasn't getting the work done. She wasn't putting money in the bank and getting any closer to securing a future with her kids. After learning about behavior design and tiny habits, Amy discovered her solution. Every day, she would write down one thing, the most important thing, that she needed to get done that day onto a post-it. That was it. That would be her new habit. Amy felt confident and optimistic she could do this each day. (laughs) After all, she didn't have to actually do the item on the post-it. She just had to write it down. Simple. Ability was dialed in. But what made this habit a success wasn't motivation or ability. It was designing a good prompt. For some habits, it's all about finding where the new habit fits in your day. Where a habit is located in your daily routine can make the difference between action and inaction, success and failure. Fortunately, Amy got it right on the first try. She planted her new habit seed in just the right spot. Here's how it worked. Amy would drop her daughter Rachel off at kindergarten every morning, and Rachel would wave goodbye and shut the car door. The door shutting was Amy's prompt. She would immediately drive to a nearby parking space at the school, then she'd do her habit, writing down her most important task on a post-it. Once she was done, Amy would stick the note to her dashboard, clap for herself once, and say, done. After the first week of doing her new habit, Amy said it felt effortless and automatic. She had found a natural place for it in her routine. Until she dropped off her daughter, Amy was thinking about what everyone needed to get out the door. Because she made her post-it habit the first work-related behavior she did, there was no time to overthink or get distracted. She also did herself a favor by designing this starter step to be laser-focused. Car door shuts, mindset switches to business mode, park the car, and figure out the most important thing to do today and write it down, finito, and hooray. It easily became part of her morning routine because she had it anchored to something that was already part of her routine. She didn't need a text alert or a calendar notification to tell her to take Rachel to school, which meant she didn't need an artificial reminder to write her post-it. Amy designed a solid prompt so the new habit formed naturally. Amy was delighted by the clarity the simple habit lent to her day. Yes, this was a small action. She knew that but her feelings of focus and success snowballed into much bigger actions. She created other habits that built on the first one. When she got home from dropping off Rachel, Amy would go immediately to her office and put the post-it on the wall in front of her desk. Some days, Amy didn't do her most important task, but most days she did. A surge of pride and accomplishment motivated her to create a flurry of to-do items, and with her golden behavior rooted firmly in place as a habit, Amy became more productive than she could have imagined. Somewhere along the line, her fear started to fade. At one point, she said out loud to herself, Wow, 
I'm really doing this. I can do this. And she continued on the path. What started with one post-it turned into a productivity avalanche. Amy realized that she had a huge passion and desire to grow her business from a one-woman shop to a multi-person strategy and content creation agency. Once she found the right prompt, it broke her logjam. And all that pent-up ambition came rushing out as she finished writing projects and completing proposals for new ones. When a large healthcare company asked her to send a proposal in for a million-dollar project, Amy didn't hesitate. Yeah, it would mean hiring people to help her get things done. But after months of success, her self-doubt was gone. Amy later told me that what had won the project was the self-confidence she projected in her pitch meeting. Half a year later, Amy was divorced. She had quadrupled her income. More important, she had gained custody of her kids and was sleeping peacefully through the night. One simple new habit can lead to more habits that ripple out well beyond the initial one. In Amy's case, her success hinged on designing the right prompt. Whether you're designing a habit from scratch or troubleshooting a habit that won't stick, you've got to figure out what will prompt you to do it every time. And behavior design provides a system to find the answer that is right for you. Don't leave prompts to chance. The good news is that you already have lots of experience designing prompts, even if you don't realize it. You've made a checklist. You've asked someone to remind you. You've set up a calendar notification in your work email. In each case, you're adding a prompt to influence your behavior. But all too often, the prompts people think will work are poorly designed. Now, if you're the person who hits the snooze button six times before getting up, you know what I'm talking about. A side note, on some phone alarms, the snooze button is actually bigger and easier to hit than the off button. Oddly enough, it seems we've been set up to hit snooze by design. When designing prompts for ourselves, it doesn't work to put one more post-it note on the computer screen already filled with other post-its. And writing a reminder on your hand might not look very professional when you're in a business meeting. In any case, there is more to the story about which prompts work and which ones don't. Otherwise, we would all be habit ninjas. Designing prompts is a skill you can learn and practice. A systematic approach to prompts. Let's look at what kinds of prompts are available to us and how they work. Once we figure this out, we can stop leaving prompts to chance or other people and start planting our new habit in fertile soil. For insight into prompts, we can again turn to the packed person model. There are three types of prompts in our life. Person prompts, context prompts, and action prompts. Let's start with person prompts. This prompt type relies on something inside of you to do a behavior. Basic bodily urges are the most natural person prompts we have. Our bodies remind us to do necessary things like eat and sleep. That pressure in your bladder, yep, that's a prompt. Grumbling stomach, that's a prompt. 
Thanks to evolution, these prompts are pretty reliable in getting us to take action. However, if your survival is not dependent on your behavior, then the person prompt isn't a good solution because our memories are notoriously faulty. Sure, there are a few times when you've magically remembered your mom's birthday, but there are probably more times you forgot if you were relying on the person prompt. A few years ago, I met some new neighbors, Bob and Wanda. She was a retired executive at Intel, and he had worked as an engineer. I was glad when they invited Denny and me to dinner. I responded with an enthusiastic yes and promised to be there at 6 p.m. sharp with a salad. Two weeks later, my phone rang at 6.42 p.m. I was deeply immersed in a work project that had a deadline, and I didn't recognize the incoming number. I let the call go to voicemail, but I was curious, so I listened to the message immediately. As soon as I heard Wanda's voice, I was flooded with regret. Hey, BJ, uh, the pasta's getting cold and sticky. Um, I made it from scratch, so it won't keep. Uh, we were expecting you at 6 p.m. Are you coming? Or I, I guess we'll plan something else. Bye. <sighs> yeah, I blew it. I called Wanda, and I apologized profusely. I was mortified. This was a terrible way to say, welcome to the neighborhood. Not my finest moment, but a great example of why you should always be wary of person prompts in general and avoid them completely when you're designing a behavior. This goes for one-time actions like showing up at a dinner party, but it's even more true for behaviors that you're trying to turn into habits. Relying on yourself to remember to do a new behavior every day is unlikely to lead to meaningful change. Ditto for trying to help someone else cultivate a habit. Let's say you want your daughter to do her homework every night instead of spending an hour on her phone. Asking her to remember to do that isn't the best strategy because person prompts are not reliable. Onward to context prompts. The context prompt is anything in your environment that cues you to take action. Sticky notes, app notifications, your phone ringing, a colleague reminding you to join a meeting. You can learn to design these context prompts effectively. If I had entered our dinner appointment on my calendar with a pop-up reminder, Danny and I would have shown up on our neighbor's doorstep at 6 p.m. with a fresh salad. Creating this context prompt would have taken me about 20 seconds. But if I had put go to Wanda and Bob's for dinner on my to-do list, that design would have probably failed because I don't look at my to-do list when I'm deep into a project. Effective design of context prompts is a skill, and learning this skill takes practice. About 10 years ago, I realized there were certain behaviors I needed to do only once a week. Water plants, pay bills, restart my computers, and more. I first tried setting alarms on my phone. At 10 a.m. on Saturday, the alarm to water plants would go off. Fine, but sometimes I was at the grocery store, so my ability to do the task was zero. I was below the action line. Sometimes an alarm would go off for the task I'd already done for the week, so that prompt wasted a bit of my time. I searched for a solution to this problem, and I found my answer. 
I wrote each weekend task on a small plastic sticky, about half the size of your typical post-it. I placed all the stickers on a laminated page that was labeled Weekend Tasks. Now, my typical routine on Saturday morning is to get out the laminated sheet and put it on the kitchen counter. Simple. This sheet becomes my checklist for the weekend. As I do each task, I move the sticker to the back of the sheet so I see only the tasks I haven't yet completed. On Sunday, when I finish the final task, I flip the laminated page over, put the final sticker on the page victoriously, and store my laminated sheet of tasks for the next weekend. My weekend checklist was a game changer for me. I finally could reliably do tasks like clean the fridge and water my houseplants. There are times you will need to design a context prompt for yourself or others. This kind of prompt is best suited for a one-time behavior, like making a doctor's appointment. Yet it's not a great way to create a habit. When I teach industry innovators, I ask them to share their most effective context prompts. Some are common and obvious. Others are surprising. Here are a few of them. Put your ring on the wrong finger. Send yourself a text message. Write on your bathroom mirror with a dry erase marker. Rearrange your furniture so something is oddly out of place. Set an alarm on your voice assistant. Put a reminder note inside the fridge. Ask your child to remind you. Stick a post-it note on the screen of your mobile phone. Context prompts can be useful and effective at times, but they can be stressful. Managing our prompt landscape effectively is one of the biggest challenges in our modern lives. When you set up too many context prompts, they can actually have the opposite effect. You become desensitized and fail to heed the prompt. You end up not hearing notification dings and not seeing sticky notes. It's like living next to the train tracks. At first, the noise of the train is deafening, and then, what train? I have a huge whiteboard in my home office listing dozens of tasks that are organized by project and coded in different colors. It's, it's a lot. In order to manage this visual and psychological avalanche, I cover up the prompts for tasks I'm not doing with a movable curtain so I see only the prompts for what I need to do that day. I've learned that covering up all the other prompts makes me calmer and more focused. If you've created a context prompt and it's not working, you're not doing anything wrong. You probably don't lack willpower or motivation. Do yourself a favor. Don't blame yourself. Redesign the prompt instead. Find what prompt works for you. In today's world, many of our context prompts are created by other people or organizations. We get emails asking us to do favors. Our digital wristwatch tells us to stand up. A red dot appears on app icons when we get a new message. The classic prompts we grew up with are relatively easy to manage. We put junk mail in the recycling bin and we remove ourselves from mailing lists. 
we change the channel during an infomercial. We tape, do not disturb, <laughs> on our office door. However, the prompts coming from digital technology are harder to manage. LinkedIn has invested a lot of money and time to tell you that 233 people have looked at your profile this week and that you should click to see who they are. Do you want to remove that prompt? Maybe, or maybe not. After all, you're curious, and the attention is flattering. Now, spam is a clearer issue. It continues to steal our time every day. Other than getting off the grid, we may never find a perfect way to stop unwanted prompts from companies with business models that depend on us to click, read, watch, rate, share, or react. This is a difficult problem that pits our human frailties against brilliant designers and powerful computer algorithms. That said, you can find ways to calm your context prompts. I urge you to invest a little effort now to save yourself time and energy later. Sometimes it's simple and fast. An industry innovator recently sent a text message to my mobile phone asking for a business favor. He wanted me to make a presentation to his team. I liked his proposal. I knew I'd likely say yes, but he was asking me using the wrong channel. I texted him back. Hello, I want to respond to you, but please send this request in an email. I use texting only for family and friends. Thank you. The next morning, I saw his reply via email. Sorry, I'll use email from now on. In about 30 seconds, I'd save myself from dozens of future prompts on my mobile phone that would interrupt and distract me. You and I may never have full control over how companies prompt us or how business colleagues and other well-intentioned humans send things our way. Context prompts are here to stay. But when it comes to designing prompts for ourselves and others, there is a better option than context prompts. The third type of prompt, and my favorite, is what I call action prompts. An action prompt is a behavior you already do that can remind you to do a new habit you want to cultivate. This is a special type of prompt. The action prompt is one way you hack your behavior with the tiny habits method. For example, your existing habit of brushing your teeth can serve as your prompt to floss a new habit. Starting the coffee maker can be your prompt to do a new stretching habit using the kitchen counter. You already have a lot of reliable routines, and each one of them can serve as an action prompt for a new habit. You put your feet on the floor in the morning. You boil water for tea or turn on the coffee maker. You flush the toilet. You drop your kid off at school. You hang your coat up when you walk through the door at the end of the day. You put your head on a pillow every night. These actions are already embedded in your life so seamlessly and naturally that you don't have to think about them. And because of that, they make fantastic prompts. It's an elegant design solution because it's so natural. You already have an entire ecosystem of routines humming along nicely. You just have to tap into it.
action prompts are so much more useful than person prompts or context prompts that I've given them a pet name, anchors. When talking about tiny habits, I use the term anchor to describe something in your life that is already stable and solid. The concept's pretty simple. If there is a new habit you want, find the right anchor within your current routine to serve as your prompt, your reminder. I selected the term anchor because you're attaching your new habit to something solid and reliable. Using anchors to remind me to do a new habit came to me like a bolt of lightning after taking a shower many years ago. Sure, (laughs) I've heard of people having breakthroughs in the shower, but I'm the only person I know who had mine after, which you'll see is perfectly fitting. After showering one evening and thinking about nothing in particular, I stepped out, dried off, wrapped a towel around myself, and walked into the bedroom. As I was opening my underwear drawer, the insight hit me. The key is after. I suppose my brain was noticing this pattern. After I shower, I always dry off. After I dry off, I always walk into the bedroom. After I walk into the bedroom, I always open my underwear drawer. And so, aha, to create a new habit, you need to find what behavior it should come after. For example, if I want to always floss my teeth after I brush, then brushing my teeth is a great prompt for my new habit of flossing. With my underwear drawer still open, I realized I'd found my answer. Behavior sequencing. You simply need to figure out what comes after what. (laughs) Eureka. I now see this like creating computer code. If you get the algorithm correct, this behavior, then this behavior, then this behavior, and then bam, you have a reliable outcome, a reliable habit. You just have to code things correctly by putting them in the right order. Your existing routine then can prompt a new habit. In other words, an anchor can prompt a new tiny behavior. You design the sequence for a new habit. When I opened the underwear drawer, I recognized that there were plenty of things I already do every day. If I could insert my new behaviors into my existing habits, they would fit into my life without much effort. And this scales beautifully. You can keep folding in new habits as long as you anchor them to existing ones. This method avoids the pitfalls of the person prompt and the context prompt because you're not relying on yourself or anyone else to remind you. You're not overwhelmed by prompts. Your day-to-day life is the prompt instead. (laughs) It doesn't get much simpler than that. I immediately tried it. I took one of the most basic and reliable behaviors humans have, going to the bathroom, and used that as a prompt for a new push-up habit. I decided that after I flushed the toilet... I would do two push-ups. Now, this might sound weird, but I worked mostly from home at the time, and it was no big deal. It wasn't long, though, before this habit was rock solid. It was like snapping puzzle pieces together. Doing push-ups after I peed soon became something that I did a few times every day. 
I got stronger pretty quickly too, which helped me to scale up and do more push-ups. Seven years later, I still do this habit. Some days I end up doing 50 push-ups or more, depending on how much water I drink. (laughs) But when I'm at home, I always do at least two push-ups after I pee. That's my tiny habit recipe. After I pee, I will do two push-ups. Using anchors is a great approach to designing prompts because anyone can do it. There's no need for fancy watches or whizzy apps to prompt new habits. You can do it yourself more effectively. And you will discover how transformative a simple design hack can be. The power of after is not magic. It's closer to chemistry. Combine the right behaviors with the right chronology and poof, a new habit is created. The Recipe for Tiny Habits At this point in the tiny habits design process, you've identified at least one new habit you want in your life. You've matched yourself. You've shrunk those behaviors to make them easy to do. And now you're going to add a prompt. After you finish this chapter, you'll have what you need to create a full tiny habit recipe that looks like this. After I, anchor, I will, new habit. For example, after I flush the toilet, I will do two push-ups. After I pull the car over, I will write down the most important task of my day. After I brush my teeth, I will floss one tooth. Finding the right sequence and fit for your new habits takes a little tinkering, but ultimately it's pretty straightforward. If you want to see a long list of sample recipes, check out the downloadable PDF where I share 300 recipes for tiny habits. Identify your anchors. Your anchor must be something that happens reliably in your life. Some of us lead very scheduled lives that are filled with reliable routines. Other lives are more unpredictable. No matter how haphazard your day might seem, I guarantee that you already have many routines that occur consistently enough to be used as an anchor. In the research I did a few years before creating the Tiny Habits Method, I found that people typically have the most routines in the morning. This makes morning fertile soil for cultivating new habits. People reported that their routines can easily go awry as the day progresses. And once one routine breaks down, then other routines do too. Daycare pickup gets pushed back because of a late meeting. You grab a pizza rather than cook dinner because you're late and exhausted from a trying day. Yeah, stuff happens. So morning is likely our most predictable time but there's plenty to work with in the afternoon and evening. Here are some examples of common anchors at different times. Morning routines. After my feet hit the ground in the morning, I will. After I sit up in bed, I will. After I turn off my alarm, I will. After I pee, I will. After I flush the toilet, I will. After I turn on the shower, I will. After I brush my teeth, I will. After I brush my hair, I will. After I make my bed, 
I will. After I tie my shoes, I will. I'm going to give you more reliable anchors and routines. As I read each one, think about a new habit that you could place right after that reliable routine. After I start the coffee maker, I will. After I pour myself a cup of coffee, I will. After I put my dish in the dishwasher, I will. After I feed the dog, I will. After I put the key in the ignition of my car, I will. So those are morning routines. Let's shift to midday. There are fewer. But here are some examples. After I hear my phone ring, I will. I did this habit for many years. I would just take a deep breath. After I hear my phone ring or anybody else's phone ring, I would just take one sigh. Keep thinking about habits you might insert after each of these anchors. After I hang up the phone, I will. After I drink a cup of coffee, I will. After I empty my inbox, I will. In my own life, I found that after emptying my inbox was a great time to do meditation. Back to the list. Evening routines. After I walk in the door after work, I will. After I hang up my keys, I will. After I put down my purse, I will. After I hang up the dog leash, I will. After I sit down to eat, I will. After I put my dinner dish in the dishwasher, I will. After I start the dishwasher, I will. After I turn off the TV, I will. After I put my head on my pillow, I will. That's the last example. And let me add something to that. A lot of people find that a habit of gratitude fits very well at that spot. After I put my head on my pillow, I will think of one thing from my day that I'm grateful for. Okay, you can see more examples of anchors in the downloadable PDF where I list 300 sample recipes for tiny habits. You will notice that all these examples of routines are precise events. A fuzzy anchor, like after dinner or whenever I feel stress, doesn't work very well. Make them precise. One good way to think about anchors is to call them anchor moments, which implies a precise moment in time. Okay, now that you've got the gist, make a list of unique-to-you anchors using the tiny exercise at the end of this chapter. Once you have a collection of anchors to choose from, look closely at the new habits you want to cultivate so you can pair your new habit with the best anchor. Where can this new habit fit naturally into my day? In teaching thousands of people how to find good anchors for their new habits, I've learned that you should take three things into account. First, match the physical location. First, consider the physical location of your new habit. Find an anchor you already do in that location. If the new habit you want is wiping down the kitchen table, look for an existing routine in the kitchen. That could be your anchor. You want to avoid having the anchor happen in one location and the new habit in another. My research shows that this rarely works. 
Location is the most important factor when you pair anchors and new habits. Match the frequency. Next, as you look at your existing routine, decide how often you want to do your new habit. If you want to do it once a day, then sequence it after an anchor that happens once a day. If you want to do your new habit four times a day, then sequence it after an anchor that happens four times a day. I wanted to do push-ups throughout my day, so placing it after I peed was a good, though quirky, solution. Match the theme or purpose. Finally, and this element is less vital than the previous two, the best anchors will have the same theme or purpose as the new habit. If you view coffee and its jolt of caffeine as a way to be more productive, then this might be a good anchor for a new habit of launching your to-do app. However, if your morning coffee is more about relaxation and me time, then a to-do app is not a good thematic fit. You might create this recipe instead. After I pour my coffee, I will open my journal. Remember Sarika from the last chapter? One of the first habits she incorporated into her new morning routine was to drink a glass of water before she had tea or coffee. The anchor that she found worked best was, after I water the jade plant in my bathroom, I will take a drink of water. When I asked her why it worked so well, she told me she thought about both actions as nourishing. By watering the plant, she was giving it what it needed to thrive. And by watering herself, she was doing what she needed to thrive. The theme here was an act of care, which made it even easier for her to remember. Both habits dovetailed so nicely, they became difficult to separate. But this recipe, after I brush my teeth, I will sweep the garage, will almost certainly fail to create a habit because it doesn't match location, frequency, or theme. If you want to sweep the garage every Saturday, then find an existing routine you already do on Saturday at home and, ideally, in the garage to use as your anchor. As you design your new habit, don't worry too much about creating the perfect recipe. If the recipe you create at first isn't to your liking, then change it. That's one reason I named this format a recipe. You should feel free to modify your creations, whether they are anchors and new habits or potatoes and gravy. I've created a format to help you design recipes in the Tiny Habits way. You can use a blank index card, or you can go online and use my template. In any case, Think about this recipe card as part of a habit recipe collection you'll create over time. Maybe you store the cards in a recipe box. In that way, it's easy to review the habits you're practicing, and you can revise as needed, crossing things out and writing a new version directly on the card. In the downloadable PDF, you will find the recipe card template that I've created to make this easy to do. Experimentation is good. 
At this point, you've got what it takes to start experimenting with your new tiny habits. Because our lives are complex and unique, there will naturally need to be adjustments. Where to put some habits is going to be obvious. I mean, what better time to floss your teeth than after you brush them, right? While others might take a while to dial in. In the first few days or even weeks of experimentation, your new habits might shift a lot. And that's better than okay. That's great. It means you're honing your skills and learning about pairing anchors with tiny behaviors. If one habit doesn't hook naturally to an anchor, you might be inspired to replace it with a different habit that seems like a better fit. The moment my head hit the pillow seemed like a good time for me to mindfully take three breaths, so I tried it out. It worked, but I didn't feel like it was doing much for me. It didn't grow naturally, and sometimes it felt pointless. Now, instead of getting down on myself, I got curious. Hmm, what else could go there? I've been wanting to practice more gratitude, so after my head hit the pillow, I thought of one thing that happened that day that I was thankful for. When I did it the first time, I got a happy little zing in my brain that told me I had found the right spot. By playing around with forming habits, we hone our skills. With practice, you'll get better at using these principles to create tiny habits that help you reach your aspirations. Quite often, the skill you'll need is finding a good anchor and pairing it with the right tiny behavior. Then you can efficiently design for change in your everyday life. A few years ago, I was eating at a great restaurant, and I couldn't finish the delicious entree. It wasn't the first time this had happened. I knew what the problem was. I had chowed down too much bread early in the meal. When servers bring fresh bread to the table, oh, it's oh so tempting. But making an early meal of bread led me to overeat later and not to enjoy the main course. Both were problems that I wanted to address. So I looked to the tiny habits method for a solution, and I found what worked for me. I created a recipe that went like this. After the server offers bread, I will say, no bread for me, thank you. And this tiny statement gave me the results I wanted right away. I no longer fill up on bread, and I enjoy the main course more thoroughly. Yes, I had to practice this new habit a bit to wire it into my life and navigate social reactions at the table. But saying this sentence is now automatic. One tiny statement at the right moment, and I can stick to my game plan. Refine your anchor with the trailing edge. It's worth reinforcing how important it is to choose a precise event in your routine, that anchor moment. Using the anchor after I pee got me to do two push-ups, and I didn't need to get more specific than that. But if it hadn't worked, I could have looked a little closer at the anchor for a specific moment I call the trailing edge. You look for the last action you do in a behavior. The last action of peeing, at least for me, is flushing the toilet. 
so I could refine my recipe to this. After I flush the toilet, I will do two push-ups. To find the trailing edge, we look at the anchor under a microscope to see what the end of an action looks like. This is particularly important for anchors that are rather fuzzy. Here are some examples of how to be more specific and boost the likelihood of your success by using the trailing edge in your recipe. The fuzzy anchor of after I eat breakfast is better when you focus on the trailing edge, such as after I start the dishwasher. The fuzzy anchor of after I get home from work is better stated as after I put my backpack on the bench. One habiteer, and again, habiteers are people who practice tiny habits. One habiteer I taught was trying to create a habit of wiping the kitchen counter. Elena created a recipe with what appeared to be a specific anchor. After I put my breakfast dishes in the sink, I will wipe one counter. That recipe looks good, right? <laughs> Except it didn't work very well. Wiping the counter wouldn't stick. Elena solved the problem by finding the trailing edge. She realized that the last action of put my breakfast dishes in the sink was turning off the water after she rinsed her cereal bowl. So turning off the water was the terminal point of the anchor, the trailing edge. Her adjusted habit recipe became, after I turn off the water, I will wipe one counter. Guess what? Success. Finding the trailing edge was all it took to snap her new habit into place. The feel of shutting off the faucet and the sound of the water abruptly stopping were sensory inputs that made the prompt more concrete and noticeable. Even though wiping a counter sounds like a small thing, Elena told me that was actually a big point of tension between her and her husband in the morning. <laughs> Crumb-strewn counters being his number one pet peeve. By incorporating that one simple habit into her daily routine, she changed the tone of their mornings together. Here are some more examples of fuzzy anchors alongside revised versions using specific trailing edges. The fuzzy anchor of brush my teeth could be trailing edge after I put my toothbrush back into the charger. The fuzzy anchor of pour coffee or tea could be after I put down the coffee carafe. The fuzzy anchor of after I take a shower could be, with a trailing edge, after I hang my towel up after a shower. The fuzzy anchor of shave my face could be after I put my razor back into the charger. The more fuzzy anchor of after I arrive at work could become after I put my backpack down at work. And lastly, the fuzzy anchor of after I comb my hair can be more specific with this trailing edge after I put my comb back on the counter. Power move. Start with anchors. Okay, ready for a twist? You can create successful recipes and tiny habits by starting with an anchor. It's basically the flip of what we've been doing. 
Instead of starting with a habit you want to create and finding a place for it, you begin with routines you already have and find new habits to plug in. If you empty the dishwasher reliably every morning, what new habit could you put right after that? Folding the dish towels or tidying the counter? After you buckle your seatbelt, what new habit might you insert there? Perhaps you take a deep breath of relaxation. Let's suppose you always put your coffee mug on your office desk. What new habit would fit in after that reliable routine? Perhaps it's getting out your to-do list. Starting with your reliable daily routines, your anchors, you can find what new tiny habit to insert after them. Some people use this as an advanced technique in tiny habits, something to try when they've already created a bunch of new habits but are looking for more opportunities in their day. Others might want to start with this. Either way, you've got more than one strategy at your disposal when it comes to creating recipes for tiny habits. Meanwhile Habits When you look carefully at your existing routines, you'll find tiny pockets of open time that are ideal places to cultivate a new habit. When I turn on the shower, the water is cold at first. (laughs) I don't like cold showers, so my typical routine is to wait until the water warms up, which takes about 20 seconds. This waiting period creates an opportunity. After I turn on the shower, and while I wait, I will... I call this type of habit a meanwhile habit. As I wait for warm water to emerge, I think of one thing about my body that I'm grateful for. I search for something new each time to appreciate, from the flexibility in my shoulders to my body's ability to heal a scratch and so on. We all have these tiny pockets of time. After we stop for a red light, after we get in line at the grocery store, After we start watering the plants on the porch, we have a choice. We can use these moments to be annoyed or distracted, or we could use these waiting periods as anchors for new habits. These new habits will start tiny and stay tiny. I have 20 seconds to wait for warm water. But don't underestimate the power of meanwhile habits. A tiny behavior done consistently can make a big difference. As you find a new way to appreciate your body each day, you'll likely be more motivated to take better care of the magnificent creation that is your physical self. While most meanwhile habits will stay tiny, you may find bigger time pockets for habits you want to grow. Brittany A working mom with five kids always seemed to have 10 or more books stacked by her bedside. Seeing this pile get bigger and bigger created stress. A certified tiny habits coach, she had designed a solid reading habit at night. However, this wasn't enough for all she wanted to learn. Brittany looked for a spot where audiobooks would fit naturally into her life. After some exploration, she created a meanwhile habit with this recipe. After I buckle my seatbelt, 
I will push play on my audiobook. So now, while she commutes to work, she listens to books. Lots of them. Thanks to her meanwhile habit, Brittany gets through at least five books a month, and the reading stack by her bed is no longer a source of stress. And let me add a bit here that's not in the text. Often, Brittany's kids are in the car with her, so they listen to the books as well, and this leads to a family discussion around the ideas and the insights in the books. She loves this meanwhile habit. The best prompts for your customers. Whether you are creating an app or asking people to donate or helping people take magnesium supplements, a well-designed prompt is vital for most businesses. In fact, it's difficult to think of any product or service that doesn't rely on getting customers to take action. No prompt means no action. To succeed with your product or service, you need to figure out what will prompt your customer at the right moment. In today's world of apps, email, and social media, we are bombarded with context prompts from businesses. In addition, we still get postal mail and phone calls that are designed to prompt us. That's not news to you. But I am going to make a prediction right now that will be news to many people. I predict that context prompts will be less and less effective over time. Businesses will pay more to get in front of their customers, but they'll get a lot less in return. Why? In the future, context prompts won't reach customers at the right moment, or they'll be filtered out and not noticed. And if context prompts do reach people, they will increasingly be able to skip them, much like we fast-forward through commercials on TiVo. <laughs> What's TiVo, my students wonder. For your business to succeed, I predict that you will need to find a better way to prompt your customer since context prompts are losing their effectiveness. The good news is that there are action prompts. Businesses today rarely employ action prompts, but I believe they will be the gold standard in the future. Many products and services will succeed by helping customers create action prompts. Here's how it might work. Let's suppose your organization needs patients to measure their blood pressure once a day. In the past, you relied on person prompts, having the patients remind themselves to do this every day, and you found this didn't work very well. So you started using context prompts. You sent text messages. Your app popped up a red reminder, or you had nurses call patients at home. But these prompts work less well over time because your patients were bombarded with too many other competing prompts. Instead of ramping up on context prompts, you turn to action prompts. To discover good action prompts, start with a bit of research. Reach out to your 200 best patients, those people who reliably measure and report their blood pressure. Ask them, at what point in your daily routine do you typically take your blood pressure? Analyze their answers and look for trends. Let's suppose that 26% of people say they measure their blood pressure 
after they sit down with coffee to read the morning newspaper. Another 21% report that they measure right after feeding their pet. Then you find that 17% of patients take a measurement at the start of their favorite morning show on TV. But the remaining 36% of patients have a wide variety of answers with no clear trends. You now have insights about what works with real people. You have data on what daily routines could serve as anchors for the habit of measuring blood pressure. As you try to increase adherence, explain that many successful patients do this daily habit at one of these three times. And then ask them, which one of these times would work best for you? In this way, you help your patients find where the new habit fits naturally in their lives. This customizes the prompt for each person's daily routine. You aren't relying on patients to remember to check their blood pressure. You aren't annoying them with notifications. And you aren't hoping they can figure this out on their own. Unless they read this book, then perhaps they will. But instead, you are using behavior design and the power of action prompts to help your patients be successful. The scenario above may sound strange to you today, but I predict that this will be commonplace and essential in the future. Businesses that help customers create habits will have a huge advantage over those that don't. Pearl Habits Creating Beauty from Irritations And aside, this is one of my favorite parts. When you learn to design and redesign prompts in your life, you're opening the door to new ways of managing situations that would otherwise distress you. Getting good sleep has been a challenge for me in the past few decades. I've long understood the importance of quality sleep, but it's probably been my number one health issue. I knew that noise in my bedroom was causing me to wake up in the middle of the night because the wall control for the air conditioning clicks every time it turns the AC on and off. I was planning to install some high-tech thermostat gadget, but I found a faster, simpler solution. When I was awake one night and anticipating the next click, I decided to make this noise my anchor for relaxing my face and neck. So my recipe was this. After I hear the click, I will relax my face and neck. It worked. And soon, I wired in this habit. When I hear the click, I relax. Because of this positive result, I'm actually happy when I hear the click because it's reminding me to relax so I can sleep better. I call these habits pearl habits because they use prompts that start out as irritants, then turn into something beautiful. My example isn't exactly earth-shattering, but I recently learned that my friend Amy did something similar by leveraging the power of after in a creative, positive way. Amy tackled a much trickier problem, and she created a remarkable pearl habit along the way. As she and her husband were separating, 
the word acrimonious was thrown around by everybody from her lawyer to her children's court-appointed therapist. Even when they finally worked out the logistics of custody, her ex-husband was still angry with her, and she wasn't too happy with him. But they couldn't avoid each other. Amy began to notice a pattern after a few months. She would have an unpleasant exchange with her ex-husband, and she would flash back to that throughout the day and feel upset or angry or guilty all over again. So she decided to try something. She couldn't control what her ex-husband said to her or how their interactions unfolded. His verbal assaults were like bad weather. Sometimes she could see them coming, and other times they came out of nowhere. What was predictable was how she felt in the aftermath. So that's what she decided to change. Her objective was to take the focus off him. Using her ex-husband's behavior as her prompt, Amy made a plan. Anytime she felt defeated or attacked by her ex, she would immediately decide to do something nice for herself. Listen to a new album from her favorite band or buy the audiobook she wanted, but she never got around to purchasing. Sometimes Amy drove straight to Starbucks for a cup of coffee or her favorite tea. Whatever she did had to make her feel good. Since Amy had precious little time during the day for herself, she realized that making her new habit a self-care habit gave her double rewards. She could wrestle back some control and do something nice for herself. So the recipe went like this. After I feel insulted, I will think of something nice to do for myself. It worked beautifully. Instead of insulting him back or feeling attacked, she would say to herself, Oh, look, another insult. Guess it's time to watch that movie I've been wanting to see. Instead of reacting to him, she'd say goodbye, get on with her business, and formulate her evening plans. Her days didn't get derailed. She didn't find herself replaying the conversation in her head. She let it go. She began to see his insults as inadvertent gifts. After all, he was the one prompting her to take good care of herself. She recognizes that this is a funny kind of logic, but thinking about a difficult situation as generously as possible helped her to get through it. Ideally, Amy wouldn't have someone in her life who made her feel that way. But we can't always edit all the toxic people and situations out of our lives. Sometimes we have to put up with people who treat us unfairly, get on our nerves, or behave badly. But we can take control of our side of the equation. That's what Amy did with her brilliant use of prompts. Using someone's behavior as a prompt for a healthy response as opposed to a self-defeating one, is a great idea that can work for all sorts of situations where we feel powerless. And Amy discovered that the positive impact far exceeded her initial intent. Her kids, who were sometimes caught in the crossfire, seemed less stressed after the weekly handoff. She also noticed 
that her newfound calm seemed to rub off on her ex. It was as if she'd taken the air out of his anger balloon. He would still make the occasional cutting remark, but his heart didn't seem in it anymore. For the first time in a long time, Amy dared to hope that one day they could actually be friends, or at least civil co-parents. This additional shift rippled out to him, and it wasn't long before he cut out the insults altogether. Amy remembers him cracking a joke one day when she dropped their kids off. They laughed together for the first time in more than two years. It felt surreal. They had reached a kind of unspoken truce that only a year earlier had felt like a moonshot. When I called her recently to ask for her help on a project, she told me that she and her ex-husband had just co-hosted their youngest daughter's graduation party. I told her this was great, but also kind of mind-blowing. She laughed a little and said, yeah, trust me, BJ, no one is more shocked than we are. I asked her how she thought it happened, and she told me that it had to do with compassion. By using his negative behavior to prompt positive behavior on her part, she became happier and more capable of compassion. When she moved out of that place of shame and discouragement, she was able to think more clearly. She realized that her ex hadn't spent much time developing his skills for getting along with people as she had. During their marriage, she had been the social buffer for his moods. So he had to figure all that out on his own when they divorced. Amy knew this was hard for him, and she found compassion for him. As human beings, we have instincts that tell us how someone feels about us, even if they're not being explicit. Amy thinks her husband sensed the attitude shift and the compassion behind it and started to make his own changes. She also told me this was totally unintended. When she created her own self-care habit, she was simply trying to protect herself and change a terrible situation. This is what happens when you hone a skill and let yourself experiment with it in new and wonderful ways. Amy's using prompts to problem-solve and flip the script on her husband's behavior was a unique and creative fix. What is not unique about Amy's story is the cascading effect that this initial positive habit had on other people and her own life. Why? it rippled out so positively, is the underlying secret to why tiny habits work so beautifully. People change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. Amy set herself up for success by thoughtfully using prompts to design changes. Those changes worked because they helped her do what she already wanted to do. And that success... That felt good. So she kept chasing that feeling and felt increasingly confident that she could bring good things into her life by designing for them. Her ability to make behaviors easy to do and her willingness to play with prompts increased, which made starting new habits a snap. 
the ease of that process increased her motivation and made her more likely to try new, seemingly difficult things. But there's one more reason that Amy was so successful. She took one last step to dial in the good vibrations. She would create positive emotions on the spot by using a technique she had learned from the tiny habits method. She celebrated. And that's our next topic. In the chapter that follows, I will share a technique for hacking your brain to give you the power to create habits quickly and easily. And now let's go to the exercises at the end of this chapter. Tiny exercises to find prompts for your new habits. Exercise number one, find your anchors. A list of habits or routines you do each day is a valuable resource. You can use any reliable habit on your list as a prompt, as an anchor, for a new habit. Below, I break a full workday into various parts to help you create a big list. Step 1. List all the daily habits you do in the morning before you arrive at work. Step 2. List all the daily habits you do before lunch. Step 3. List all the daily habits you do during lunch. Step 4. List all the daily habits you do right after lunch. Now, if you're like most people, you may not have many reliable habits in the afternoon. That's okay. Step 5. List all the daily habits you do to wrap up your day at work. You might only have a few, but they make great anchors for new habits. Step 6. List all the daily habits you do after you leave work, including those at home. Step 7. List all the daily habits you do just before you go to bed. Step 8. Save your list. You'll use it in the next exercise. Exercise number 2. Create tiny habit recipes by using your list of existing habits. One fast and effective way to create new habits is to start with your existing daily routines, then find a new habit that would naturally follow. In the previous exercise, you created a big list of daily habits. That's good. You will use that list now. Step 1. Pick one reliable habit from your list of habits that you never forget to do. Step two, think about what new habits could naturally follow this one. Come up with a few ideas. Step three, pick the new habit you like most from step two. Write out a recipe in the tiny habits format. After I, I will. Step four, repeat steps one, through three for two more reliable habits to create two more recipes for tiny habits. By working on three habits at once, you will actually learn more. Step five, start practicing your new habits. Don't be too serious or uptight about it. Just dive in, have fun. Exercise number three, create pearl habits to deal with irritants in your life. This is an exercise about creating something valuable from an irritant. 
Step one, list at least 10 things that often happen to you that irritate you. A long line, a noisy motorcycle, a barking dog next door. Step two, select the most frequent and annoying thing on your list. Step three, explore new beneficial habits you could do after the annoyance. Come up with at least five options. Step four, select your best option from step three and create a tiny habit recipe. For example, after I realize I must stand in line, I will practice standing on one foot, then the other. And step five, start practicing your pearl habit and notice what happens to your irritation level. Now that we've covered the exercises and before we move to the next chapter, let me bring in the pack person again to remind us what we've learned about the sources of prompts. There are three sources of prompts. One is the person prompt. That's just remembering to do the new habit or behavior. That's not very reliable. Number two, you have the context prompt. That can be a post-it note, it can be an alarm, it can be another person. Context prompts are okay for one-time actions. They tend to not be great for new habits. The best prompt for new habits is number three, the action prompt. Finding an existing routine you already do and make that your anchor or your reminder to do the new habit you want. Chapter 5. Emotions Create Habits And before I get started, let me add this. I think this is the most important chapter of all. Here we go. Linda had a postcard taped on her fridge next to her kids' finger-painted masterpieces. It was a black-and-white illustration of a 1950s housewife talking on the phone. Above the woman's perfectly coiffed head was a talk bubble. If the kids are alive at five o'clock, I've done my job. <laughs> when Linda saw it, she laughed out loud. It made her smile, and then it made her think. It represented an attitude of self-acceptance that she badly wanted but felt too difficult to adopt. The idea that you could feel satisfied with what you were doing for your kids made sense to her logically, but it was totally inaccessible emotionally, which is why she put the postcard on her fridge. When her husband came home and saw it hanging there, he raised his eyebrows at the irony. It's aspirational, Linda said with a sigh. Back then, Linda was a full-time stay-at-home mom with six kids under the age of 13. She loved being home with them and wouldn't have had it any other way, yet she felt constantly underwater and overwhelmed. When she laid her head down at night, every thought was about what she didn't get done that day. Images from the day spun up in her mind. Cheerios littering the backseat of her car. I should have vacuumed it. Piles of unfolded laundry. I should have put it away. Her son's face falling after she snapped at him for pushing his sister. I should be more patient with him. The dirty plates piling up in her sink. 
I should have done all the dishes. My mom would have never left them like that. What started out as small deficits on her to-do list ended up amounting to something much worse. Every undone task that paraded through Linda's mind at night morphed into a rumination on all the ways she didn't measure up as a mom or a partner or a human being. Some evenings, as Linda put the milk back in the fridge for the umpteenth time, even the 1950s housewife seemed disappointed in her. <laughs> not only did Linda never knock off mom duty at 5 o'clock, she also couldn't give herself credit for all of her hard work. Glancing at the woman on her fridge ended up being less of an inspiration and more of a reminder of just how far away she was from that attitude of plucky self-acceptance. When Linda told me this story years later, it didn't surprise me. In my research, I found that adults have many ways to tell themselves, I did a bad job, and very few ways of saying, I did a good job. We rarely recognize our successes and feel good about what we've done. Feeling good about your tiny successes may feel strange to you. Like Linda, you might focus only on your shortcomings as you scamper through your days and trudge through your years. I'm here to tell you that you are not alone, and that's why I'm writing this chapter for you. In the pages ahead, I will show you how to gain a superpower, the ability to feel good at any given moment. You can use this superpower to transform your habits and, ultimately, your life. Feeling good is a vital part of the Tiny Habits Method. You can create this good feeling by using a technique I call celebration. When you celebrate in the Tiny Habits way, you create a positive feeling inside yourself on demand. This good feeling wires the new habit into your brain. That's so important. I'm going to say it again. This good feeling wires the new habit into your brain. You'll find that celebration is surprisingly effective, and it can be quick and easy, even fun. Celebration is both a specific technique for behavior change and a psychological frame shift. Imagine how different Linda's nightly ruminations would have been if she'd had a way to make things feel a lot less lopsided. Because the truth is that her day was filled with both deficits and surpluses, stressful moments and successful ones. She may not have vacuumed the car, but she got her kids to school, soccer, and violin lessons on time. She may not have folded the laundry perfectly, but she had washed and dried all the dirty clothes. She may not have done all the dishes, but she had fed her kids a healthy meal that they enjoyed together. At the time, Linda didn't understand the importance of embracing those small victories as a way to change her behavior and her life. Those wins were there all along, but Linda like many people, needed the skills to know how to celebrate them. A confession. I didn't tell you everything about why my tooth flossing habit was so successful so quickly. Sure, 
I dialed in my behavior from a behavior model perspective. I made flossing easy to do. I found a great prompt. Bam, it's all looking good, right? Well, there was one more piece of the puzzle. I stumbled on it during a time when I felt so much stress that I could barely get through each day. A new business I had started was failing, and my young nephew had died tragically. Navigating the personal and day-to-day fallout of those events meant that I hadn't had a good night's sleep in weeks. I was so anxious most nights that I would get up at 3 a.m. and do the only thing that calmed me down, watch videos of puppies on the Internet. In the morning, I'd stumble out of bed and start the day. As I washed up in the bathroom, I avoided looking in the mirror. I didn't want to be reminded of the reality that I knew would be staring me in the face. I looked terrible, felt terrible, and I was scared to face the day. One early morning, after a particularly bad night when even the puppy videos didn't calm me, I reluctantly glanced in the mirror and I thought to myself, you know, this could be the day when the wheels totally fall off. A day not just of setbacks, but paralyzing failure. Hmm. As I went about my morning routine, I picked up the floss and I thought to myself, well, even if everything else goes wrong today, I'm not a total failure. At least I flossed one tooth. I smiled in the mirror and I said one word to myself, victory. And then I felt it. Something changed. It was like a warm space had opened up in my chest where there had been a dark tightness. I felt calmer and even a little energized. And this made me want to feel that way again. But then I worried I was losing it. My nephew had just died. My life seemed ready to fall apart. And flossing one tooth had made me feel better? That's nuts. How did that make me feel better? If I hadn't been a behavior scientist and endlessly curious about human nature, I might have laughed at myself and left it alone. But I asked myself, how did flossing that tooth make me feel better? Was it the flossing itself or was it saying victory into the mirror or was it smiling? I tried it again that evening. I flossed one tooth, smiled at myself in the mirror and said, victory. <laughs> and the days that followed, many of which were still difficult, I continued to floss and proclaim victory. No matter what else was going on, I was able to create a moment in each day when I felt good. And that was remarkable. At the time, I didn't know why my little celebration worked, but I sensed an important shift. I started using my victory proclamation with other new habits, and I noticed that those seemed to lock in more quickly than the ones that I didn't celebrate. So I tried different ways to celebrate by giving myself a thumbs up for doing a fist bump and saying, awesome. I also found ways to celebrate quietly. I could create a feeling of success by simply smiling or saying, yay, in my head. When I started sharing my tiny habits method with others in 2011, I made celebration part of the program. I didn't explain why I wanted the habiteurs to do this. I just said, after you do your new habit, 
celebrate. Later, while training and certifying coaches to teach the Tiny Habits Method, I learned that celebration doesn't come naturally to everyone and that it even makes some people uncomfortable. Hey, we'll tackle that later. Don't worry. Despite my instructing them on how to celebrate, some habiteers blew this off, thinking that celebration was optional or just too hokey to try. Even professionals who were learning my method in depth sometimes didn't take celebration seriously. I started emphasizing this technique more and more because I became increasingly convinced of the power of feeling good as the best way to create habits. I knew that from my own experience, coaching others, and firsthand research, that people who embrace celebrations turned out to be the most successful at creating habits quickly. What's more, people who celebrated were telling me how surprised they were that this one little shift made such a difference. People said that they started looking forward to doing their new habits just so they could celebrate. Someone would ask me, is this crazy? Well, no, it's actually a very good sign. Before I go on, let me walk through the steps in behavior design and show where celebration fits. Step one, clarify the aspiration. Step two, explore the behavior options. Step three, match with specific behaviors. Step four, start tiny. Step five, find a good prompt. And now, step six, celebrate successes. Why have I been so adamant about celebration? Well, to answer that, let me rewind to the early days of Tiny Habits. A few months into my sharing the Tiny Habits method, I had an experience I will never forget. I was reading an email from a woman named Rhonda. She wrote to thank me. She explained that my celebration technique had made a major impact on her life. To her surprise, she felt optimistic that she was finally discovering her potential. Once she started practicing tiny habits, she realized that she had endured a lifetime of self-trash talk. And that was her quote, and I remember that very specifically reading that email. A lifetime of self-trash talk. This insight from Rhonda galvanized me. It made me even more determined to share tiny habits and the powerful technique of celebration. Thanks to Rhonda, 